the Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 45. It's Dark Outside. Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And today's episode is going to be looking at a series from the 1960s called It's Dark Outside. This is a series that ran for two seasons. The entirety of the first season survives, two episodes of the second season survive. And what we're going to look at is the first episode of each season and the second episode, the second surviving episode of the second season. And the reason we've gone for the second season rather than the first is that Anthony Ainley's one of the series regulars. Mm. I don't know anything about this, no. so I'm coming to it cold. So It's Dark Outside was the middle part of a connected trilogy of um, initially police. The first show, The Odd Man, featured uh, Inspector Rose, um, played by William Mervyn, as one of the lead characters. And that's reasonably good in terms of survivability. I think it's uh, three series of which round about half survive. Keith Barron also played one of the regulars in that. They, those two characters spin off into It's Dark Outside with William Mervyn and Keith Barron. And Keith Barron leaves at the end of the first series uh, and, and is replaced by Anthony Ainley in the, the second series. Before we actually launch into the episodes themselves... time to get out the tonic screwdriver it is and again we're doing a sort of kind of in parallel with um the around the archives team in that we have not managed to get exactly the same gins because lisa's got hold of a, a special local gin from her that i wasn't able to, to get hold of any of but she's looking at a violet gin mm. and so we've got jj whitley's violet gin i can't believe we haven't done this yet because it's one of my go-to gins, and... Well, maybe you've been to it too often. I'm going to steam in straight away. It's a five out of five from me. I it, love this one. It's a five out of five from me. It's I've, I love violet. It's one of my favourite mm. flavours. This is a really nice, very very definitely a gin. So it, it, it has the your other botanicals. It has that um, bit of barky edge and underneath it all. But the the flavour that really hits you is the the violet. It's definitely violet, um, yeah. And it's quite a sweet violet. Because mm. we had, uh, what did we have uh, last session? We had a violet, but it was more Staffordshire black Staffordshire violet. black violet, which was really nice. But that was that was more sharp. This it is was, um, this is drifting into Palmer territory, which I don't mind. I know a lot of people don't like Palmer violet. I do. Grab whatever's left in your glass. Let's go into the black archive. Just run me past that concept again. Here we are under Podcasting House, where all the missing film and television exists. What are we going to rescue today? What would you like? I think, having talked about it, we should have the missing episodes of The Odd Man. Okay. It's not one that I know. I've never seen an episode of it. Um, All of Mr. Rose survives, and I've got all three seasons of that on DVD, and some of it is marvellous, and we should uh, do that at some point. And one of the episodes was written by Peter Wildblood. It's very tied in with the Wolfenden Report. We'll do a very British sex scandal at some point. Right. That might be one to do on a future Pride special. Uh, Pride is... That's very much your domain, so whatever you put in front of me is fine, televisually speaking. 
Well, I'm going to stick with the theme. I'm going to rescue all the last episodes of Zed Guys. Oh, that's a truckload. Yes, there's one or two missing. Um, that was a heavy casualty from the 1960s. And I didn't realise until we did a recording last year that it ran until 1977, 78 or something, and it was quite a different beast by that point. I remember watching the later episodes of Dead Cars on Transmission. It was, it was something that my gran used to like. The, the early ones, I think, have a charm with Stratford Johns and uh, Brian Blessed and Frank Windsor, I think, was awesome. They had a charm for me, and it's a shame that not more of them survive. So, for that reason alone, I'd like to see them. And also, it ties in nicely with the Round the Archives team because they're big fans of Zed Cars. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll be doing their own Black Archive segment, so it'd be quite interesting to see what they, they choose mm. for, um, for their picks. Just while we're down here, um, Simon, you have brought with you for this recording session a splendid book called Missing Believe Wiped by Dick Fiddy. And it's a BFI book basically about lost television and it's I've not read it yet but flipping through it it is a beautifully researched looking book so it, it is it, it's a wonderful book uh, you wouldn't tell it to look, look at it because I'm a bit OCD about the condition that I keep my books in um, but I've read it over and over and over again yeah and there, there's another wonderful one called wiped which is a much more in-depth look at the Wiping and recovery of the Doctor Who missing episodes. And oh, that's got to be worth a read. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a, a much chunkier book and it really drills down into exactly which country bought what right. and really following the, the paper trail as much as possible and saying how much of it ended up in Sierra Leone. Oh, God, Sierra Leone. I, I can picture exactly where I was. I was in a back garden in Penwitham years ago now, it's probably about eight or nine years ago. And the text came through from you that pretty much all of Hartnell up until I think Masterplan you'd said had survived in Sierra Leone. I I thought it was all of Hartnell apart from Masterplan. And then there was a civil war and bang bang, 1999, the whole lot went up in flames. I'd like to think that that's just an apocryphal story that it's it's got very similitude because of a, a few bits of paperwork and... Actually, they were never there at all. But to think that... Or Philip Morris found them when he found the Morgan Wises in the abandoned cinema in Sierra Leone. and is... He sat on a huge cache of, of lost Hartnell. It's um, comforting to think, actually, that... Because Paul Vanessa has said that there are definitely... He knows where a couple of missing episodes are. They're in private hands. So they are out there. And we know that... Web of Fear 3 is it certainly somewhere. exists somewhere probably still in Nigeria, in Nigeria for whatever reason I, I think I doubt it somebody will have grabbed it and flogged it yeah very odd so no I live in hope that more will turn up but for the moment we are very well looked after as Doctor Who fans the first and foremost we have audio recordings of every single episode now that at least we're very fortunate compared to a lot of other series yes and we have I mean I th- when I became a Aware of the, the missing episodes was eighty three. It would be, it, it was the Radio Times twentieth twentieth anniversary edition, and I think there were nearly one hundred and forty missing episodes. Yeah, because it was originally much higher. I think Ian Levine found oh, a lot. I think it was over. It was well over two hundred that were missing. I think he, he did pull back quite a lot. Uh, he. he he and Sue Moulton found basically the whole of seasons one and two, mm. and then most of season six was recovered from the British Film Institute, um, and they, they were the the big chunks of stuff yeah. that came back in the in the late seventies. Since then, we've had four complete stories recovered. 
Time Meddler, War Machines, Tomb of Sidemen, Enemy of the World, with hopefully at some point Web of Fear to be added to that list. Oh, what a terrible shame. Anyway, well, I'm sure it'll all come out in the wash eventually. And also <coughs> ones where there really wasn't very much in the way, if anything, in terms of surviving footage. So there wasn't anything from Ice Warriors and then four episodes were recovered. Mm. There wasn't anything from Equal of the Daleks and then an episode was recovered. We are very, for all that we lament that there are 97 episodes missing, and there will always be 97 episodes missing, no, it's I not. would stake my reputation and go and just say it here, please. <laughs> He's the one that needs to say that. Every time he does, they immediately turn up and it's marvellous. I might not like the man, but I've got to give him kudos for, for what he's brought back. Yeah, so having gone massively off topic, shall we climb back up to the viewing room and put It's Dark Outside on? Absolutely. We're doing the, the first episode of the first series, which will be a little treat for you. I've, I've seen all of the episodes a number of times. So. Splendid. So without further ado, run VT. the first episode of It's Dark Outside from 1965 The Grim World of the Brothers Tolk I rather enjoyed that I've always liked It's Dark Outside it suffers from the thing you get with 1960s police series in that all the the policemen even when they're trying to be working class and northern are a bit suited <laughs> when you, Keith Barron he, I don't he, he was the trying to be grim and northern and, but he is northern but he wasn't particularly grim he's a miserable bugger throughout do you want to give the praise here and then we'll pull it apart or put it back together the story revolves around two brothers uh, the brothers talk from the, the title and they'd been a music hall act never went down particularly well they'd uh, say that their act was thought as a bit too dark and macabre and jokes about death, that kind of thing. While they were playing the uh, the Isle of Wight uh, many years previously, there had been a, a, a gruesome murder of a young girl. And you are initially led to believe that it was uh, the brother who um, dresses up in drag, who's a little bit odd. Mm. Uh, played brilliantly by Aubrey Morris. Morris. He's absolutely superb. Yes. He's only in about the first half of the episode. Um, and he lives with his brother Arthur who he, uh, and Arthur's wife. Arthur's wife obviously, obviously hates her brother-in-law. Mm. The feeling is returned. She doesn't like they, uh, the fact they used to be on, on stage and is very suspicious that this was the, the killer of the little girl on the, the Isle of Wight. Uh, Aubrey Morris's character, whose name I can't remember. Harold. Harold is out walking about and sees a, um, a mannequin in a, a shop window wearing a, a dress that he likes the look of, and he mimics the pose of the mannequin. He's spotted by the police, by a passing policeman who thinks this is all a bit weird, and so arrests him, and, he, and Harold is not cooperative in the slightest. He's also found to have some 
pictures in his pocket that you are kind of led to assume are... Risqué. Risqué. And it, it's not overtly said, but made pretty clear that Harold is gay. Uh, yeah, I would, I would go with that, yes. Yeah. So he gets locked up in the cells and he's very, very upset by this, shouting the place down, asking to be let out. And during the night is strangled. The police who are looking after the case are Inspector Rose and Sergeant Swift, the spin-off characters from uh, The Odd Man. And when I said earlier that The Odd Man ran for three seasons, it actually ran for four. Um, And Swift and Rose were later additions to it. They weren't the original policemen Mm. in it. And Swift is very, this man is weird. Look at these photos. They're disgusting. He must be the killer. Um, And Rose is much more sanguine about it and basically says each to his own, which Swift doesn't accept. Swift is accused of killing Harold in the, uh, the police cells and is told to, to go home and leave the investigation of everybody else. And he hasn't the sense to do that. He gets involved, he goes around, he sees Arthur, the, the brother. There's something being burnt while he's there that he, he notices. And as he's leaving, he runs into a lawyer friend of um, Inspector Rose, who is the, one of the other regular characters throughout the series, a character called John Carson, uh, sorry, uh, Anthony Brown, played by John Carson, um, and also his wife, Alice Brown, played by June, June Tobin, who is a journalist who had tried interviewing Swift earlier and got a flea in her ear for that. So Swift loses his temper again, storms out. And as he storms out past the um, the woman who's accusing him of killing her brother-in-law, he says, I haven't killed anybody yet, which is just... Interesting thing for a police sergeant to say. A very odd thing. She's brought the, this lawyer around to meet her husband to talk about compensation for the, the death. The husband comes down and says, claps eyes on the lawyer and absolutely freaks and what the hell have you brought these people here for kicks them out it storms off upstairs insists she kicks out she kicks him out of the house and then he goes missing and so inspector rose thinks that that's a bit odd goes to look at their house uh, goes goes to search their house finds a a trunk of theatrical costumes which smell strongly of, of mothballs the the only thing that they've been able to remember about the um the policeman who'd taken Harold's his, his dinner was that he smelt strongly of mothballs. Mm. And there's a picture from the stage act of Arthur in a policeman's costume. So they realise that actually Arthur has gone and killed his brother because he didn't think he'd be able to cope with life behind bars. And he says that, says this to his wife when she finds him hiding in a, a, a nearby derelict house. And she's saying, oh, it's a mercy killing. It's a, um, he was the one that uh, did for the girl, the, the two murdered schoolgirls. And she says, I'll get you some of your costumes. When it gets dark, we'll be able to, to sneak you out and get you away. And she disappears off. There then um, is a schoolgirl playing nearby whose ball falls into the, the house as so she goes down to the, uh, the cellar to, to collect it, finds Harold, who um, starts talking away to it. And it becomes obvious that Harold was the, uh, sorry, Arthur was the murderer all along and has blamed it on, on Harold and, and killed Harold. And Swift has been investigating, has found that this is where Arthur is hiding, gets a, um, the local constable to, um, to break the door to the house down, and they find Arthur just as he's about to strangle the schoolgirl. So, mm. so it's all made, made sense of, uh, and Swift is reinstated. Well, very dark, very good. Um, as with a lot of police stuff, it's all tied up very quickly at the, at the last minute. And that, yeah. That, that's, Certainly true of almost every episode in this. Mm. 
wonderful build-up, and then it seems that they get to the last ten minutes and think, "Oh God, we've got to uh, sort this out." <laughs> <coughs> and it, it's not actually that that bad in the, in this. So some of the later episodes, it's very much, uh, "Oh, we, we we need to sort it out." So we'll just tell you what's gone gone on without the um, the plot to uh, to really justify it. And there are a few things where there are just very odd, random leaps of logic that just happen to be right. There's one episode where. Somebody gets bitten by a dog and Swift realises that because they've been bitten by a dog, they must have rabies. Um, and the fact that they In have, England. Yes. And the fact that they have rabies, he's able to use that to get that particular person to tell him what he knows about what's going on in a, a, a boarding house. So there are some very oddly uh, stretches of logic there. But all in all, it's consistently entertaining and really quite dark and grim in places. I enjoyed that. I was expecting something much more off the wall because your choices from this period do tend to be a little bit surreal. So I was expecting something surreal. I didn't realise it was just basically a straight police drama and it was very good. I I did enjoy that. And the other thing is the four regulars in this, so the the two policemen, the the lawyer and his wife, it's only Inspector Rose that translates to, to series two. And that's because one of the other characters, and I won't say which and I won't say how, because it, it's really skillfully done, has a real fall from grace during the um, the series and by the final episode is attempting to murder people. Um, and it's very subtly done episode by episode, so you have to watch them in order. Mm. They all start off seeming to be pretty much whiter than white, and each of their characters changes quite significantly. Inspector Rose doesn't. He, he's, the, he's the constant. But the other three all have story progression, which ends up, as I say, with one of them being a, a, a massive fall from grace. And it's really well worth watching. You see, I still know Mervyn, or William Mervyn best as the gentleman on the train from the Railway Children, who sorts everything out. And we've seen him in a few things now, but he, that's the only thing I can ever really picture him as. But he's always this very avuncular old gentleman yeah. in whatever he plays. And after It's Dark Outside, he went on to write his memoirs as a, a retired police inspector and it's the story that's the story that uh, the things that he gets involved with and some of those are a little more odd mm. and we can do those at a later date but for now i think we should crack on with the first episode of season two there are only two surviving episodes from season two which is a dreadful shame the first and the fifth and we're going to watch both of those and then we'll hear what lisa and andy had had to say from their viewings they're watching the same episodes as us but meantime, series two, episode one, Ron VT. You can't stand still in business these days. Do you know what that means? It means grow, expand, make more money. But, but, but what's right or wrong? Nobody even cares. You shouldn't worry about it. And I went to her. She knew what was right. I told her everything and, and she said I was forgiven. And for about a week I wasn't frightened. Can you imagine what that felt like? Can, can you understand the, the relief? And then she, she started on about you, about leaving you, and I, well, I told her I couldn't. I couldn't. Okay, well, we've skipped ahead a little bit. Uh, that was episode one of series two, The Guilty Word of Hosea Pitt. It was very much the same series, but he did have a, a, a different feel to it. There was uh, a more fantastical element to there, it. There was. There are... Three new regulars, um, so Inspector Rose is still there and in charge of the police. He has a new sergeant taking over from Swift from the last series, and 
Sergeant Hunter, played by Anthony Ainley. Um, there's his girlfriend, who's a she's an illustrator, isn't she? Yes. Um, Claire Martin, played by Veronica Strong, and there is also journal, a journalist friend of hers, who is Fred Blaine, played by John Stratton. Better known to Who fans as Shockeye, and better known to Quatermass fans as Captain Potter. And it does not look like there's been six years in between those two, does it? There's a little bit of aging going on. Yeah. I mean, having said that, playing a very different character. Yeah, yeah. The, the plot is more fantastical. It deals with a religious cult um, run by a woman called She. And Brian Wilde plays Hosea Pitt, who gets involved with that. He was brought up in a very strictly religious household, and she plays on his guilt about this. Um, her second-in-command also plays on his guilt about this, Um tries to break up his marriage by talking to him and talking to talking to his much younger wife try and uses her position to try and extort money out of them she is found murdered with Hosea Pitt's walking stick and he then confesses to the murder turns out he's confessed to the murder because he thinks his wife has done it and he's trying to protect her and it actually turns out that it's the cult leader having found out that her deputy is trying to extort money bringing her cult into disrepute also there's a, a lesbian aspect to it as well quite it made quite open mm. that she is in love with her yeah which for pre-1967 it uh, with with both of the episodes they watched they They've had a, a gay element. But they've been as blatant about it as mm. they can be. Because I was surprised by this. It was only when I, I looked on IMDb at the year. That would have been quite near the knuckle for the time. Yeah, 65. Mm. Although having said that, um, lesbianism was never crim- criminalised. The story apparently is that when they, the law was being written in Victorian times, Queen Victoria didn't believe that women could get up to that kind of thing. So had the, the law rewritten so that it, uh, it only covered... Acts between men. Whether that's true or not, I have no idea. But that, that was always, that was the story I was told. By all accounts, Queen Victoria was quite a, a savvy woman. Interesting. And again, product of her times. A couple of hundred years earlier, rather than being sent to prison, people were being executed for being gay, and onwards and upwards, so to speak. Um, I, I think it's difficult for us, 150 years later or whatever, to be looking back and and saying this this is terrible, people should not have, not have done this. Um, social evolution is just that. It's a building upon building upon building. Yeah, I've not been to a gay stoning for quite a while. We've stopped doing those in Richmond now. It was, it was considered... Well, it's like because you've run out. You no, know, it was considered socially unacceptable. We got letters. So yeah, they, they stopped that. I think the last hanging was in 1995. So yeah, we, we got about that. And they've dismantled the ducking still now, so alas, East Lancashire's got to evolve. How can you tell with the amount of crap that's floating around in, in, the, in the canal down the road? Well, half of those are bodies. Congratulations on navigating your way back from the corner shop. I'm very <laughs> impressed. Um, yeah, that was more I mean, fantastic. I was, quite, I was quite surprised just how blatant the drug deal <laughs> that I'd walked past was. I try and shut that element out because I... Um, Dear listeners, I do actually live in quite a nice little town. It's just that uh, certain... Every now and again, it lets itself down. Scangers are everywhere. Yeah. Um, the most common problem that I've found in society in recent years, which you sort of mentally edit out the, the nasty bit sometimes, and I travel about quite a bit, and coke is everywhere. What is wrong with you people? What's missing from your life? And it's an... It's, it's a terrible drug. Um, 
It really, I, I'm actually, really fucks you up. Yeah, it, it does. It, there, there is nothing good about cocaine. Yeah, it, it gives you energy. It gives you buzz. It really screws up your system. I look at people that have taken it, and they start taking it in, you know, usually quite young. Within a few short years, they are haggard. Yeah. Um, and We're talking three or four years, it, virtually unrecognisable. And I look at these beautiful people and think, what have you done to yourself? It it does. I do get quite upset about it because um, I have a couple of people that I have, uh, you know, I've loved as people have fallen into that, and it's got me quite upset because there's there's nothing you can do. There is, but you have to wait for them to make the the first move, and that that's the the upsetting thing mm. that, that families find. And obviously, having worked in A and E, then I see the end result of this. A number of people who've, who've come in. Um, after cocaine, thinking that they've had a, a heart attack or have had a heart attack as a result of it because it screws up your heart. I'm fairly permissive in terms of drugs and certainly in, in terms of things like marijuana. It's, it, it's not my cup of tea at all. And I have tried it and it doesn't really do very much for me. And frankly, I'd prefer a pint. But people that like it, I think, should be able to use it. It is not significantly more damaging than alcohol taken to excess or smoking. The only problem that I've got with marijuana, this is segueing a little bit, but it's in keeping with the change of tone for series two of It's Dark Outside. Uh, everybody always compares things with Holland. It should be legalised. You know, it's legal in Holland and there's no problem. Now, there's no problem in Holland, but Holland is not England and we just can't be trusted as a nation to use it responsibly. It's bad enough. The number of white vans that I, you know, particularly in summer... That drive past with the windows down and you just get this waft of weed. You're driving and having a toke. That can't be good. Yeah. I kind of don't agree with that, to be honest. I think that if it were legalised and, and properly legalised, then you would get people go absolutely over the top for a while and then it would normalise. Um, I think that there would need to be very clear and visible stop and test for people driving under the influence and driving while they're high. I would like to think that is true. There will be the initial, wow, this is new, let's try yeah. it, all that. And my, my problem is the English cannot be trusted. And you would just get a situation where, not everybody, of course, but you would get enough people who would buy a packet of 20 joints hmm. as if they were buying a packet of 20 L&B. Yeah. And, and that's my problem. And talk their way through. But if, that, if that's your problem... Why not decriminalize? Why not criminalize alcohol? Because people do exactly the same with a big bottle of vodka. They'll buy that and neck the lot in one night. I've had patients who will get through three or four liters of vodka a night. Yeah. Um, I don't see a difference. Either you say we will ban everything that's bad for you. So let's have your alcohol back. Let's have your cigarettes back. Let's have your cigars back. Or actually, marijuana isn't too terrible for you. We will treat you as responsible adults, go and do what you're going to do. I would love to think that way. I'd love to think, you know, here's a uh, here's a packet of 20 that you will enjoy in the evening, just as you would have a glass of wine or a pint of ale or something. Yeah, which most, I, which I, most I, people who take a drink do. Mm. There is a small number that will take it to absolute excess. Teenagers will take more than is good for them. Most people on occasion will take a bit more than is good for them as long as... Long really? As it, Gin? It happens. <laughs> Definitely not in this house. Yeah, and obviously as, as a doctor, it's not what I 
would, would recommend. <laughs> you don't prescribe yourself 14 bottles of gin in a weekend. Would that not be your usual prescription? One, it's been quite it, it's been quite a while since I've been able to prescribe alcohol. I used to be able to. Really? Yeah. I, actually, no, it's not been that long. Sometime. In what form? Uh, last thing I prescribed, I think, was cans of Guinness. I need explanations. Right. Um, hospices will allow their patients to have alcohol on a patient-by-patient basis. If you're going to allow that, rather than just saying, bring whatever you like in and fill your boots and you end up with somebody smashed out of their box, you come to an agreement and say, you like a, a drink before you, before you go to bed or you like a, a drink with your dinner. You've got a week left to live. We are not going to hold that back from you. But for safety's sake, we will put it on the um, on the prescription chart. Right, that's a new one. One of the hospices I worked worked at basically used to do a drinks round at the end of the day. Scraping us back off this vice track that we've wandered down, it's oh, dark outside. Using the word vice is terribly judgmental. I would never presume such a liberty. It's mm-hmm. dark outside series two. Um, yeah, it's gone down a more fantastical route for episode one. I did enjoy it. There are some interesting performances. Brian Wilde plays Brian Wilde, always does, Everything. and he, he's always entertaining. Um, Deanna Kidd, who plays his wife, was pretty blonde girl from the 60s. Well, she, she's supposed to be considerably younger, but she doesn't look that much younger. She was one of the regulars in Secret Beneath the Sea, the, the second of the City Beneath the Sea serials. I don't know it. No, um, but you do know Pathfinders. Yes. Right, so the team that did Pathfinders did the four Pathfinders serials. So Target Luna, which was live and doesn't and hasn't survived, and then Space Mars and Venus, which have survived, and then they did three underwater serials with the um, the same lead actors but playing different characters. Because um, it wasn't Pathfinders and Galoshes, or no. Well, I mean, it basically was, but none of the uh, none of the the characters right. translated. Um, so you got Plateau of Fear, which again transmitted live doesn't survive, and then City Beneath the Sea and Secret Beneath the Sea, both of which exist in their entirety mm-hmm. and have been given a wonderful release by Network and will do them at some point. And she was one of the series regulars from the final serial, the Secret Beneath the Sea. Uh, just before we move on to... And actually, it. Aubrey Morris was um, one of the regulars in the City Beneath the Sea. Just before we move on to the last episode of this we're going to watch, um, I'd like to give a shout-out to Network, actually. Because uh, we, we wouldn't have a podcast. Aware. No, we wouldn't. Um, they they released stuff on DVD. It's not particularly cleaned up or anything, but this is stuff that you would never ever see. Uh, I am quite surprised by some of the stuff that Simon either brings round or lands through the door that is on network DVDs. They're very lovingly presented, and it's largely odd, not quite mainstream stuff, or old black and white stuff. Because th- this would have been mainstream. Well, it's, it's the, this clearly an ITV thing. It's been the, on ITV. You can tell by the, the advert breaks and yeah. what have you. Um, the, this would have been prime time. Well, so. no, well, what I mean is, it's it's not been fondly remembered as a great cult, as a great classic. Clearly, people like yourself are aware of it, so you will buy it as an example of. Well, it's one of the things I read about in the Blue Book. Yeah, the Blue Book. Oh, have I not told you about the Blue Book? So there were. A- you sound like the anti-chairman Mal. <laughs> <laughs> 
when I when I was a teenager and uh, first starting to get in, interested in cult TV, and I've, I've said there were a few things that led towards that. So the fanzine Time Screen was one. The Past Visions of the Future event at the National Film Theatre was another, and there was the Blue Book, um, which was the ITV Encyclopedia of Adventure, and it's basically a collection of episode guides for ITV serials like this, um, with pictures from it. It's where I first heard of things like Ghost Squad and the Corridor People, and years before yeah. I. I thought I would. They had a picture from the corridor people in it as well. It was very exciting. Um, <laughs> but years before, I, I, I thought I would ever be able to see any of these things. And then now, um, at network are, are releasing them, and it, it's wonderful to be able to see. I mean, it, it's it's quite sad that there are things that are missing. But the other thing that Network has done, when they're prepping things for their DVD release, they've actually found a whole lot of episodes that weren't known about. So I think right. I think when they were prepping this, as far as um, anyone was aware, it was only the first series that survived. And then when they actually physically went to the archives, they said, oh, actually, there's a couple from the second series as well. But they're so lovingly done. Yes. And I just think it's such a niche market uh, for these DVDs. They're clearly not making a, a if they're making any profit at all. I hope they are. I, I, I would like to think by, they are. Not but, by very much. But for the effort that they're putting into releasing these things on physical media... Hats off to your network. I don't know who you are or who's responsible, but uh, it's. Uh, I am impressed that you've gone to such effort. So uh, without further ado... Well, the, uh, the oh, final oh, thing oh. that I, would, I was going to talk about was the performance of the she of the uh, the cult. The Mary Morris, not Mary yeah. Morris. Well, she, she's, she's trying... To, she does seem to be trying to be Mary Morris. She comes across as a cross between Mary Morris and Paula Quatermass. <laughs> <laughs> in, that, in that she doesn't do the effortless disdain that Mary Morris does anywhere near as well. And she doesn't quite have Paul's finishing school accent, but it's not terribly far off. I loved her, you know. Yes, that's why I did it. Okay. Right, scene shifters, if we could just get the plank of wood off the set, we'll uh, bring the actors in now. Yeah, not not brilliant. And actually, Deanna Kidd wasn't terribly brilliant either. She was a bit... A bit planky. Well, they they brought her in as this sort of young wife, but no, but they they make a point about the fact that um, you've got your looks, but they're not going to last for very much very much longer. And yeah, you're younger than he is, but actually, you know what? There are newer models coming along. Yeah, and I believe she was one of the actresses that was considered for the role of Polly. Really, I'm very very glad Annika Wills got it. Yes, so. Onwards to episode five, which is the second... Oh, it's not the second episode at all. No, no it's, it's episode the, five. It's the fifth episode. It's the second surviving one yeah. from the second series, but it, it's the fifth episode. So uh, the characters of Hunter and Claire and Fred Blaine have been well established by this point. And this is called A Slight Case of Matrimony. Yes, it's from the 26th of March, 1965. Wrong VT. This has got to stop now before it goes any further. Oh, Charles, I know exactly how you feel. You're beginning to have doubts. Everybody does. I felt exactly the same before both my marriages. I have no doubts. Don't worry, Charles. We're going to be very happy together. You know nothing about me. My whole life is centred around my work. Well, of course it is now, because you're lonely. What you need is a home. I'm not going to marry you, Margot. But you must. You can't let me down like oh, this. Oh, my dear, you don't realise how lucky you are. I'm an irritable, crotchety, middle-aged man, hidebound, set in my ways, selfish... Well, exactly. it's easy enough to run yourself down. That's what every man does when he wants to get out of something, but it won't work. I'm not going to change my mind, Margot. Um, 
It's going a little bit... Uh, well, that's the end of that. There are no more episodes to watch. But it's gone a bit odd. That, that was quite an interesting episode. Um, because there were really four parallel plots. And about the least interesting one of which was the police case that they're investigating because it's that was the one that was really the most lighthearted because it was a case of a bigamist and as the episode goes on, more and more women come out of the woodwork that he's married because he's interested in the wedding ceremonies but doesn't believe in divorce, so goes through all of these weddings. And, and that was really kind of there to put a tick in the box of this mm. is a police show. Fred Blaine, the journalist, goes back to visit his wife and tries to, to reconcile, says that he's given up drinking. Then after a little bit of time at home, m- makes a series of very flimsy excuses to leave. She asks him to stay and help prepare the tea. And he goes out and gets plastered. absolutely plastered. Comes back and she just says, this isn't going to work and it, unless you're sober. And he goes back to London, um, where the bigamist has been holed up in his flat and has met the next door neighbour played by... Sheila Stiefel, who is uh, uh, who is Claire Martin's housemate. Claire has spent the night in the the new flat that she and Hunter are going to be moving into. And when she wakes up, there is a strange man in the flat that she assumes is going to be the is, is the carpet layer. And he, he comes across as a bit odd and creepy. She heads off out to work, comes back, sees that the carpet hasn't been been laid, and he says, "Well, I never said I was a carpet layer." And then proceeds to get out a knife, threaten her, chop the carpet she's bought into little pieces. And then Hunter comes to to find her, comes across this fellow cap uh, having hacked their new carpet into loads of little pieces. And he, he's quite a creepy little character, isn't mm. he? And he threatens Hunter with the uh, with a with a knife. Hunter, who's an expert in judo, and you see this see that earlier on in the the episode subdues him and then gets angry and gives him a kicking and you don't know whether he's alive or dead. And the the final plot strand, which again is a bit played for laughs, is Inspector Rose meets an old friend from 20-odd years ago. Um, they have a very entertaining evening chatting over old times. It obviously means a lot more to her than it does to him. Hmm. Um, and she just assumes that they're going to get married because she's been married a number of times and that's just what she does. And he ends up having to let her down, initially trying to be quite gentle about it, but in the end having to be fairly brutal and just saying, look, I am going and this isn't going to happen. Mm. Um, and that the, the two sort of marriage plot lines are very much filler. Yes. Now, as I understand it, the rest of the series did a sort of fall from grace thing that the first series did with Hunter and Claire trying to cover up the fact that between them they've just murdered this madman who was in their flat. Uh, and at the same time, Blaine, so the journalist, is picking up clues of what's gone on while descending into his own alcoholic haze. And it's a real pity those episodes don't don't exist because the the descent from respectable member of uh, of society to they they become a murderer in the um the first season that is really well done and i think they would have done a similarly good job with the the final episodes of this it, it is a real shame that we don't get to see that but we get to see the start of it here mm. well bear in mind this is the one where we just watched episode 5 isn't yes it? so that's all you know you're near enough so, the so there room. are three more oh there are, there were eight in the room yes. ah right I don't think it helps viewing it out of context. No. We've got one episode existing, you know, the first episode and then the middle one. 
and nothing to balance it out either side to give it context. Yeah. And I have the advantage in that I've seen all the episodes of the first season. Mm. So I've seen the way they did that kind of overarching plot. It is an odd episode viewed on its own. Yeah. But it sort of, it foreshadows what I imagine was a, a very good ongoing plot. This was sort of like the mid-season booster episode for, you know, leading into the grand finale. Yeah. Which is, we, we tend to think of as a, a modern way of doing television. Yes. So, so I, it's not that I didn't enjoy it. It's just viewed out of context. It's a little bit odd, almost surreal compared with what we've watched as sort of standard crime episodes. Yeah. But the first one was a the first episode of the second series was a little bit more surreal mm. than the um, the first uh, series. Yeah, so all things considered, um, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I I thoroughly en- enjoyed that. It's it's quite a dark little series. Mm. Um, there, there, there's an awful lot going on with it. There's an awful lot of social commentary at the time, like like soap operas. You just pick up because that's the way people were then, rather yeah. than them making a, a particular point about it. Hmm. We will see what Andy and Lisa have to say about it. Yep, and then we will reconvene for a, a four-way chat, which may involve segues. Small chatette. We'll shut down our little bit of it, and we'll hand over to Andy and Lisa. Our first live guests. How exciting. Those dead ones weren't really working. Good evening, Lisa. Good evening, Andrew, or is it good afternoon? It's the afternoon. It's the afternoon. Thank you to the Exton Moss Experiment for allowing us on board to do a full segment. We have invaded. So we're going to start off with the tonic screwdriver, aren't we? We are. Right, do you want to start, Lisa? Um, Well, I start open the tonic first. Yeah, Okay, what tonic have you got? This is, it's uh, it's just Schweppes Slimline. Right. There we go. put the gin in first, shouldn't I? Really? I'm going to drown it. Never mind. <laughs> I'm no expert with gin. Neither am I, it seems. Right, so, and what have you got there? And I have got... It looks purple. It, it looks purple. like Actually, it looks like paraffin. Okay, it's not paraffin. It's Fordington gin, violet, and it's made locally. Okay. In Dorchester. Okay. It's a present from uh, young Mr Warren. If you can get the lid off. Oh, there we go. Right. <laughs> it's all tonic in there. It's all tonic, <laughs> no gin. So I'm, I'm bringing shame to Exton Moss. Yeah, that, that was like nine parts tonic and one part gin. gin. I don't think you're supposed to do it like that. No. I should have opened the gin first. Right. Never mind. You can have a slurp. Have a slurp and see what it's like. It'll taste like tonic. <laughs> tonic with some violet in it. No, you can taste the gin. All right. And Quite, what, it's a bit fizzy, sorry. What, what are you getting there, um, if anything? Mostly tonic, to be honest. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think I'd probably give that a, a three. It's quite nice. All right. Mm. You, you've got the Bernard scale. The Bernard scale, yeah. Now, uh, technically, of course, mm. uh, to use any scale, I should have a control sample. So I okay. should have something that we know is five Bernards. Mm-hmm. And from that, that, we can measure right. other things. You've just been awkward now, aren't you? No. So to comply with that, mm. I'm going to have something that I know I like. Okay. Now, I know I don't like gin because I've yes. tried gin yeah. many times and mm-hmm. I've never found one that doesn't just taste of medicine to okay. me. So instead, mm-hmm. I've got a big tube from Scotland here. Okay. So. Yes. There we go. It's a bottle of Laphroaig Select. Mm-hmm. Now, if you know your 
Lefroig. Yeah. You'll know what that is. But it's it's a lovely, lovely whiskey. Okay. And it it says here. Uh, Lefroig has a trademarked peat reek matched by an additional layer of complexity and depth brought about by the fusion of maturation styles and different oaks because this is from carefully selected casks of all, all of our key styles now I'm going to have a go with it okay. I, might, I might cough but that's a sign it's doing me good right. <laughs> as uh, Nanny Og would say so here we go. Mm. <laughs> as as Peter Davison would go. That is really quite unique. Mm -hmm. Um I've tried quite a few whiskies over the years. Mm -hmm. But there really is nothing quite like Lefroig. And there's such a lot going on here that I'd love to do some chemical analysis of it one day. Okay. <laughs> How many burners are you going to give it? I am definitely giving that five burners. Five burners, okay. Because there's just so much. So much depth. Even now, there's it's slightly changing in okay. my in my mouth. But nice. but yeah, it is. There's peat and seaweed and mm -hmm. TCP and I can smell TCP and, and chimneys and smoke Crumbs. and all sorts of okay. all sorts of things which probably mm -hmm. on their own would taste horrible. But they all taste nice but together. If you if you get them all in one go, mm -hmm. they're really rather amazing. Right. So I shall enjoy having that. Okay. So let's move on to the Black Archive. <laughs> So, Lisa, mm. what would you like to release from the Black Archive? I would like to release, and I know there's no chance of this ever being seen because it, it went out live and it's probably never been tele-recorded, but I would like to see Wurzel Gummidge Turns Detective from February 1953. So this is the first incarnation of Wurzel Gummidge yes. on television, predating John Pertwee. Predating by... John Pertwee by quite some time, <laughs> yes. So who's, who's starring as Wurzel it's, Gummidge? Um, Frank Atkinson yeah, and uh, Totty Truman Taylor is it as Aunt Sally right. and Mabel Constadurus as, as Earthy Mangold. Now we've got the Wurzel Gummidge book we have, and all that survives of it are a couple of photographs yeah. aren't there? Yeah. But what do, you, what do you think he looks like as, I, as, as a gummage on I the scary he looks, scale? He's not too scary, yeah. he's quite sort of friendly, child friendly, but yeah he looks interesting. <laughs> And what about you? What would you like to release from the Black Archive? Well, I'm going for something from 1969, mm -hmm. starring Hugh Lloyd and Terry Scott. Yes. And it's not Hugh and I. Okay. Which is what most people think of. It is the long forgotten and long since missing uh, Jimmy Perry series, mm -hmm. The Gnomes of Dulwich. Okay. Ran for six episodes. Yeah. No footage survives. No. There are some photographs. There mm -hmm. are rumours of uh, an audio copy of possibly episode six. Okay. And I have heard a little snatch of a trailer for it. Yes. Which is all that I've ever been able to yeah. come across. And, mm -hmm. and that was only um, come across a, a few years ago. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Hugh Lloyd is small and Terry Scott is big, apparently. <laughs> 
because they are gnomes. Right. And this is the adventures of the gnomes, including uh, John Clive as old, Leon mm. Thau as plastic, mm. Andy, Vig- Andy Vigier as dolly, mm. and Lynn Dolby as Rita. Okay. And there's an awful lot of interesting names here, mm-hmm. if you know your Jimmy Perry stuff. Yes. So you've got Colin Bean, mm. you've got Barry Cryer, right. you've got Jack Haig, <laughs> you've got Nigel Hawthorne. Okay. You've got John Lurie. Yeah. You have actually got Jimmy Perry. Okay. You've got Frank Williams mm-hmm. and our Facebook friend Colin Spall. Ooh, okay. We should ask him about that. I bet he that. doesn't remember a thing about it. But yeah, it's uh, it, it's fair to say that Jimmy Perry comedy and fantasy mm. don't necessarily have the best reputation. I'm no. thinking of Comeback Mrs. Noah. Yes. But we went back to come back, Mrs. Noah. And quite enjoyed it. And it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. So I I hope the the same is true of the gnomes of Dulwich. Yes. But I don't think we'll ever know. No. Right, let's move on to It's Dark Outside. Mm -hmm. So, as requested, we've watched the three episodes, The Grim World of the Brothers Tolk from Series 1, and The Guilty World of Hosea Pitt, and a slight case of matrimony from series two. Yes. This is a damn weird show, it's isn't it? It's a very weird show, yes. Yes, I mean, Mr Rose, which follows on from this, is also weird, but I think that lacks a lot of the darkness that this mm. contains. Yeah, the, the the word dark is important in this. Yes. Because you meet some very odd characters in these in you these do. three episodes, yeah. don't you? And some very unlikable characters as well. Yeah, because Aubrey Morris... Hmm. Uh, he's only in like the first third of the first episode yes. but he gives a stunning performance God, yes he really makes an impact yeah yeah and we were led to understand he really enjoyed yes. that performance and was quite pleased to but know it, that it survived. it survived yeah yeah but um i don't think we need go through the plot because i'm sure no. simon and ken will will do that yes but I find I always find it's dark outside quite a frustrating series mm-hmm. in that you've got the first series survives really well yes and the second series is almost completely missing yes. so much like adam adamant lives mm-hmm. i've never got a full feel for how the second series actually is no and i don't know whether these are typical episodes or not no i would like to have seen more of the second series just for the fact that it's got anthony only in it and he's an interesting character in some ways he's more interesting than keith Barron character yeah from Ju- the first series judo ainley because of course yes. he gets his foot in the title he does. sequence yeah, he does a little bit of judo and you've met anthony ainley I haven't have. you yes. and Many years he ago. gave us some sweeties he did he got uh, some merry mints and he, he kissed your hand he and, did and, and sang your song and serenaded yes. you yes <laughs> do you accept uh, anthony ainley as an action hero though um i didn't think i would but he does it quite well yeah. he pulls it off quite well he yeah. does seem quite tough in this yes. doesn't he yeah. Yeah. though he was watching his hair because obviously <laughs> later on in his life he did wear a wig but I think this must be his own hair at could, this point. could you see the join or I not I see the join no <laughs> see slight case of matrimony st- st- struck me as being unusual in mm-hmm. that there's really no crime no not not a, no. Not a major one only a sort of Bit of bigamy, isn't There's it? a bloke that that's a bigamist and, and a weird bloke who's come to lay the well. He, he hasn't come. He to hasn't lay the come carpet. to lay the carpet. He's he's come to get his knife out and yeah. cut holes in the carpet. Yeah, hasn't it's just he? a bit weird, isn't it? And th- this is very much more a sort of soap opera thing, I think. In yes. that it concentrates on the 
on the sort of private lives of the characters. Mm-hmm. But there's a there's a fair bit of that in this in the first series, yes. isn't there? Because of course, Keith Barron as he's as he's fling, doesn't yes, he? Yes, with with um, John Carson's wife. Yeah. In the first series, that's a spoiler if you've not seen it. <laughs> but I think this is one of those shows that Simon introduced us to mm-hmm. once on, on our sort of you know you yeah, sh- you, you, sh- you should watch this. Yes. And we've seen two seasons of Mr Rose, but yes. we've we've never really got beyond the first episode of the third no. season. It's a bit repetitious and so Of this these two second season episodes, it always disappoints me that there's so little Mr Rose yes. in there. Yes, there needs to be more Mr Rose. Because mm. yeah. he is he he is a great actor, he isn't is. he? Yeah. And yeah. you forget just how much he's done. Oh yeah, gosh, he's he's a very well known actor by this point. Yeah, because he's he's got all, all gas and gators as well, mm-hmm. and later on Crown Court. Yeah, so, I love him in Crown Court. So he's he's, bri- he's brilliant in that. But we're we're talking January sixty four for the first episode and February sixty five for the sec- start of the second season. Mm-hmm. I would say that first episode does really drop you in the deep end doesn't it it doesn't feel like a season opener to me no it, no it feels like the middle of the season and you've already been introduced to the characters so yeah. that you know who they are because you just particularly i suppose what it is is the odd man out which came before this mm. had introduced you to mr rose's character yeah. and to keith barron's character yeah. so perhaps you're they were expecting people to know who they are yeah we're, we're slightly hampered by the fact that they, although that exists it's never been released yeah no, i've never seen i've never seen any of it yeah. but when we first watched the brothers Tolk episode god it was dark well that's the thing we had a memory of it being dark but mm. going back to it for, it for a second time it, it wasn't quite as bad no i think it's just that first initial viewing but the, the opening scene um where, where they find the body of the girl mm. It's quite cleverly shot in that yes. you don't see anything and no. it's left to your imagination. To your imagination. So, so you've got this crowd of people, mm-hmm. um, sort of women, I guess, just lurking, mm-hmm. haven't you? Um, it's a great shame, I would also say, that, um, that the sort of tele-recordings of these not in the aren't in the necessarily no. the best, best quality. And... We should also say about the theme tune as well. Mm. You, you're not that keen on a, on a jazzy theme no, tune generally, no. are it you? Just, it reminds me of the jazz bug from the new series of The Clangers. Yeah, because in The Clangers there's this bug made out of metal. Yeah, and every time it moves it goes... And yeah, I should make wiggly noises, wiggly noises, wiggly motions with my finger every time this this starts but let's think briefly about um other shows you've got on at this point which are a bit odd yeah um there are quite a few because don't forget sergeant cork is running at this yes. point and and that that's not afraid to go for no, weird episodes no, it's as well not and dark episodes and to be honest a lot of these plots mm-hmm. i mean i'm especially thinking of, of the one with the fake medium mm-hmm. could almost be avengers plots yes or Adam Adamant lives. Yeah. So I feel that the, you know, you've you've got Zed Cars and Dixon of Doc Green doing procedural stuff, mm-hmm. but it seems to me that every other police or crime or spy series He's going a bit has weird. a license to yeah. be a bit odd. Mm-hmm. And I, I I approve of that because can you imagine a series being commissioned these days? That had stories that were quite so strange. Not really, no. no. Not in the last five to ten years no no i mean the, the, this these sort of plots are the only, only th- you'd only get them in like 
things like Inside Number Nine or, or something yes. like that now, yes. which are very much one-off. You don't get these sort of plots no. in in continuing in dramas. In, in continuing no. dramas. Which so is a bit sad, are. really. Nobody's yeah. willing to take that chance. But yeah, I mean, it's available on DVD and. Mm -hmm. Of course we bought it. Of course, yeah. <laughs> and it would be nice if some more turned up. Yeah, I, I definitely like some more series too, just to see yeah. how Anthony Amy's character develops. Yeah, because you've got Sheila Stiefel turning up in this last episode. Mm -hmm. and I, I don't even know whether she's in any other episodes. No. I don't know, I'd need to look. Mm -hmm. But uh, there we go. So there is... I'll, I'll talk about It's Dark Outside. Yes. And hopefully we'll be able to have a bit of a natter with it about it with Simon and Ken very shortly. Yes. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, guys. Well, the end of this edition was due to be a four-way chat, but as usual, we overran slightly. So next time is a full-length discussion with Andy and Lisa as we go behind the sofa with Round the Archives. Until then, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. The Exton Moss experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss and the title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rushton, Lancashire, and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook.